and welcome to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology. Conversations in Anthropology is a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. It is produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Maithali Maher, and myself, Matt Barlow. It's made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association and is supported by the Australian Anthropological Society. In this episode, Cameo speaks with two anthropologists of Aboriginal Australia, Fred Myers and Jason Gibson. Both whitefellas, they reflect on the evolving relationship between anthropology and Indigenous studies, and the evolving role of the anthropologist and anthropological knowledge in Indigenous communities, where, as Fred says, decolonisation doesn't disentangle, and Indigenous knowledge and artefacts persevere in long, complicated enmeshments with the settler state and its institutions, and indeed with globalised spheres of circulation, such as the art worlds where Aboriginal work is now so often exhibited. Fred is the author of numerous seminal works on these topics, such as the 2002 Painting Culture, and his first book, Pintubi Country, Pintubi Self, Sentiment, Place and Politics Among Western Desert Aboriginals. And Jason is the author of the 2020 book, Ceremony Men, Making Ethnography and the Return of the Strelo Collection. Listeners might be interested to compare some of Fred and Jason's reflections to our conversations with Beth Povinelli and the Caribbean Collective, on their experience of exhibiting Aboriginal film around the world in episode 18. And as a side note, some of our listeners might also be interested to hear Fred talk briefly about some of the same family matters that inspired his wife Faye Ginsberg's work in disability studies, which she discusses in episode 33. So without further ado, let's get to cameo Jason and Fred. So welcome, and uh, I'm very thrilled today to be recording the podcast episode with Professor Fred Myers from New York University. And I'm joined today by Dr. Jason Gibson, who's a research fellow here at Deakin University. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Camille. So I'll start out by a question that we traditionally launch our podcast episodes with, which is what brought each of you to anthropology and specifically the type of anthropology that you engage in? We might start with you, Fred. Well, this is in the land of myth, isn't it now? Uh, reaching back into the past. I graduated from a university in 1970, facing the draft, and I'd spent years in university trying to figure out how I wouldn't get drafted, and then gave me a little less of an incentive to think about my postgraduate training. But I did manage to get out of the draft. I was a religious studies major as an undergraduate, and that has a lot to do in a way with how I got there because it was a very general subject. So we read philosophy, sociology of religion. I was very interested in the possibilities of different ways of constructing and knowing the world, which kind of was the path into anthropology. I never had an undergraduate anthropology course. But in religious studies, I had a professor who had worked in Thailand on Buddhism. He'd been a missionary, and he was, but no longer much of a missionary. And my other professor there, whose son is a very distinguished anthropologist now, was a kind of brilliant lecturer on theological and existentialism. So he was just beginning to get interested in Yoruba religion and Yoruba art. So that probably had something to do with it. And we read, you know, Clifford Gertz and things. And I was, so I was very interested in these other ways, plus impelled by the late 60s and ideas of, you know, alternative ways, something outside of 
possessive individualism. And so I graduated and I was just kind of knocking around and I had a friend and he said, oh, so what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I just kind of reading this. I just read Trees Tropique. I'm kind of interested. Maybe anthropology. Said, well, we could do that. I said, well, it's a little bit late. It's going to have August and classes start in a month. He said, oh, no, you know, we could still, Bryn Mawr College, which was a women's undergraduate school, was just like two miles from our house. He must have been my friend who was a neighbor. And so I applied. And uh, Amherst College, which is where I was undergraduate, gave me a grant. They gave me money because I was a good student or they liked me or whatever. And I went there. My friend didn't go in the end. They, they took me as an experiment, actually, they said, weirdly. And I wasn't a good fit for them in some ways because... Which part was they, the experiment, you know, Fred, do you think? I hadn't done any anthropology, you know, at all. And I, I think that was probably it. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do, except I was interested in these things. And so they took me. It turns out Annette Weiner was a graduate student in the program, but she was already 30 or, or maybe more, I guess. And I was 22. I was totally unsuited to be there. And, I, you know, they, they had a party very early on. I remember her saying, do you want to come to this party? I said, well, who's going to be there? And she said, well, you know, Frederica de Laguna, Freddie and Jane, these are all the professors. I said, I want to go with all those old people. <laughs> but anyway, they were all very tolerant of me. And I suppose I knew I wanted to work. I didn't want to do sociology. I really wanted to do something non-Western in some way or more interesting in that way at the time. I was very political and the, the funny part was I was actually very critical. I, you know, I was Marcuse, I took seminars on Marx. I was, I had these two kind of sides, but I, the political end of things when I was an undergraduate got so dicey and so scary with SDS and so on. And I was so turned off by the manipulativeness of the uh, left movement as it was emerging that I just wanted to get away from it. I, you know, I kind of lost an inter not an interest, but I didn't want to be involved in that anymore. So I wanted to just go do something else. And um, so I, you know, I knew nothing. I mean, it was ridiculous. I didn't even know how to read a monography. I, the first one I had to read, they told me I had to read, read a Tikopia. They made me take an undergraduate course on social organization. I can't tell you. I was reading Sartre and Marcuse. And then it's Raymond Perth, 600 pages ending with where you lie your head down on a wooden piece of thing. And they said, I had to learn how to, you know, what was in ethnography or what it was. It was a kind of Wittgenstein in reverse, right, to try to understand this. So Frederica de Laguna had been one of Boaz's last students, and she had worked in the boreal areas. And so my first course was boreal peoples. I'm taking this course. What do I know? I don't even know what boreal was. First four weeks, basketry, uh, how Athabascans made their leggings. And I thought... I'm really not going to make it. You know, I had the least interest in material culture of any person could possibly have. Right. So, of course, you see where I end up now. Right? But there was, I knew nothing. And I just kept saying, oh, really, is it going to get any better? And they just kept saying, they're very patient. And Freddie, who was 60 in her 60, after a certain point, we were allowed to call her Freddie. Uh, she was like a blue stocking. So when she had seminars, she would sit there with her notebook open and people would present and she would just write things down. They did not allow much debate and argument. It was a really blue stocking feminist place. And I was very argumentative. You know, like everything was like an argument and they just kind of basically said, thank you. And they would just like shut it down. So I actually became quite enamored of the women's college education, which was more about scholarship. 
I didn't really become unargumentative, but a lot less so. They really taught people to have respect for what their what the material, what the scholarship was, to listen to what people had to say. And Freddie was a great example of it. The other course I had to take was a course um, with A. Irving Hallowell, who was probably 80 at the time. And he was a tiny little man, and his fingers were yellow from smoking pell-mell cigarettes. You probably think it's called pell-mell, but they were called pell-mell. They were like carcinogenic beyond belief, but there was a very distinguished kind of a... And he would bring in with these old notes, and he was doing a behavioral evolution. But actually, so I ended up, Hallow was a very big influence on me because of his self and behavioral environment. The title of my grant proposal that I got money from NSF was called The Self and Its Changing Behavioral Environment in Central Australia. That's what I was funded to do. You know, I think these old people, I just like, you know, here I am 22. I was so intolerant and green. But Brynmar was a incredible undergraduate college of young women and they were all super smart and i was just a year older than them it was like i'd gone to a men's college believe me i was really just flipped from one insanity to another and so i had i mostly hung out with the undergraduates and they were anthro majors so jane goodale kind of latched on to me who worked with the tiwi right she was super patient she is from a very new england family mayflower family uh, she was a person who everybody had, when she was a student, she'd gone to Radcliffe, but it was a family inheritance, really. And they all thought she was stupid. So she had faith in people. She just said, everybody, I'm going to let you go as far as you can go. We're going to help you. And that was a huge thing for me. I have to say, I, that was the lesson I learned. I think the most important thing I really ever learned about with students is that you have to just give them faith in them and give them the room. And she was unbelievable. You know, so... There wasn't any religion there. They were, you know, kind of very general, but it was cultural. And, um, but I was very taken intellectually inspired really by Gertz and the Gertzian, you know, cultural framework, because Gertz was basically an existentialist, which is what I was uh, at that time, you know, kind of my orientation. But that's not what I got funded to do. That's mm. not how I got there. So. Were your origins similarly modest, Jason, would you say? Well, you know, listening to that story has been really wonderful because I find there's a number of resonances there with oh. my own story. You know, in many ways, I've become an accidental anthropologist, really. You know, my early engagements through the university system were with sociology again, and the things that really sort of got me going, got me interested really were critical theory. And as you, you mentioned, Marcuse, Marx, you know, those kinds of yeah. ideas. You know, I'm probably a few decades on in sort of coming to these books compared to you. But um, I think it's interesting that those those types of um, theoretical works were kind of important fuel for my thinking in terms of coming to my master's work, my master's degree work in Indigenous Australia. So which was... Um, you know, I'm far more interested in uh, the way that Indigenous communities in Australia were beginning to grapple with what it was at the time in the, the mid to late 90s, an emerging technology of the World Wide Web and the internet and those sorts of things. And I sort of came to that question of, well, how are these marginalised groups in Australia, these Indigenous groups, going to find ways of utilising this, this new technology? But I came to it with that kind of critical framework, that political um, framework. I, I was an activist at the time. 
So, you know, my arrival at anthropology was similarly kind of tangential to yours, Fred, I guess. Seems to be a relatively common experience. There's very few anthropologists who started out to purposely be an anthropologist, it would seem. Probably not a good pathway. Um, so, Fred, maybe you can tell us now a little bit more about how you ended up coming to Australia, because I can imagine that the, the part, well, and, and the particular part of Australia that you worked in is, is quite remote by Australian standards, if not global standards. So, how was it that you ended up coming to work in Central Australia? Well, I was going to quit in my second year of uh, postgraduate, and James said, oh, you're doing really well, why don't you... I said, I didn't know we were supposed to write a master's paper. She said, well, we, you do. I said, well, I don't have any idea what I would do. I said, well, here's the problem. She said, why don't you write about place and organization? So I read everything I could, and I wrote a master's thesis on that. And then I was going to quit again, because I didn't like it there. But I read uh, Iwara, uh, Dick Gould's book, which I really liked. Uh, I read Stanner, I read Burns. I read it pretty much everything I could get my hands on then, Nancy Munn and so on. And so I wrote a grant proposal. I knew I couldn't work in the U.S. I couldn't work with Native Americans because as an American, they wouldn't have a bar of me at that time. And I didn't really think this through very well. <laughs> but in Australia, I thought, well, it won't be the same. And so my, the project was really to work on local organization from the point of view, it was a very superior project about individuals that, that had been neglected, that there was too much of a group model. Uh, that's what would come out of my master's paper. So I wanted to go somewhere where it was possible to do that. So I had nowhere to go in Australia. Anyway, I got a grant, I got the money. Annette Weiner had made some friends in Australia. These were, I won't even go into the, how these connections were made, but it was a wilder and woolier day. I was met at the airport in Sydney by Nick Majeska, who'd worked in Papua New Guinea, who'd been a friend of hers. Uh, and I stayed with Peter White in Sydney, in Balmain. With all, it was really wild. I cannot tell you how insane it was at the time. It do was tell us, loose. Fred, do tell us. It was, it was right It was right after Whitlam had been elected. Mm. These people were out of their minds. First of all, they drank like nobody I'd ever seen before, <laughs> right? These parties, you know, because Balmain was kind of this sort of labor party, lefty, you know, very wild um, uh, people. Um, so I was trying to find a place to work where I could go because I had to get permission. So I, I was in Sydney. There weren't too many people who could help me. And they said, oh, you should go to Canberra. Nick Peterson has been working with the Woodward Commission. He's been in a lot of places. Maybe he can help you. So then I went to Canberra and I stayed with, he, wrote, he was a Pacific historian who wrote murder mysteries. I stayed with him in Canberra. I'd never been so cold in my whole life, waiting for Nick to come back. Nick gave me some places. Oh, and, and so in, in Canberra, Tyndale was there, you know, visiting, they had a big conference, uh, thing. Tyndale was there, and what's his name? Joe Birdsell was there. And they said, oh, you could go here, you could go there. Stanner wasn't much help at all. He don't go to Port Keats, he said. <laughs> I've been there, I might go back. So then I wrote some letters. So the decision was uh, Jeremy Beckett and Jane Goodale had known these people who were in the DAA now in Darwin. So I flew up to Darwin, Anita, up then 10 Milliken were up there. They, she'd known them from the old days. I went to see them and she said, oh, we'll write a letter to this place and this place and that place. My Lori Owens, she said, he's a good guy. He's out at Papunya with this new outstation. And I said, okay. And I wrote there and I got on a bus and I went down to, so here's the story. I had never been out of the US except to Canada driving across. So I really didn't know how far I was going or what it meant. I knew nothing. I really knew nothing. I camped out in Canada, but that's about it. 
right? And maybe in the California Hills. But so I really, I just jumped over the cliff and kind of hoped that there was some landing place. The other place I was going to go was Wadi Creek. Oh, and, and Nick Peterson told me I couldn't go to Mill and Gimby because uh, that was reserved for Ian Keane. So, Fred, this was kind of the time when, and perhaps it's still going on, but the time yeah. when anthropologists had their patch, it sounds. It was very territorial. It was extremely territorial. And I got to go to Papunya because nobody else had been there. They couldn't tell me I couldn't go. That was really it. So I got on the bus, I drove down, I went to Alice Springs and I rented a car. I got permission to go out there and ask them if I could go do field work there. And I rented a car, some old Holden. I went to the DAA office. It was a new DAA. There was no longer the interior. And they had a couple of Aboriginal guys who just got out of jail. And they got in the car and they just said, just drive west. And I'm driving and driving and driving and driving. I'm on a dirt road and I'm thinking like, are we going in the right direction? And they're like, yeah, I keep going. You know, it's like, keep going. So eventually I couldn't fix this car, by the way, if it broke down. I had no idea what I was doing. So we get to Papunya and they say, oh yeah, the Pintipi were just here. They went back out to Yayai. Just go out there, out west. I said, like, there's like, you know how the roads go everywhere around the community? I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Nothing. I had I had this old Holden. I start driving on this road and praying that it's something. Eventually I catch up to the white Bedford truck full of people just like hanging off the edges of it. They stop, I stop. All the kids get out and they jump in my car, right? The Bedford takes off. I can't get the car started again. We're stuck. We're stuck there in the middle of, for all I know, nowhere, right? And so we're sitting there, we're there, and they said, oh, we're going to have to walk, you know, start. I said, well, how far is it? They said, oh, not far, you know, 10 miles, whatever. Eventually, an old uh, Land Rover drives up with some young guys, and they fix the car, and I get out, out to Yai Yai. Uh, Laurie Owens is not there. Ken Hansen, the missionary linguist, is not there who might translate, his wife is there. She gives me a cup of tea. I think, well, I'll wait for he comes back and he'll introduce me to people and I'll make my pitch. Nope. Pretty soon this kid comes over. He says, the old men are ready to talk to you. Like I, you know, right? Nose pick, shorty long at all these people. I go over there and I, I say, look, you know, I would like to come and stay here for a year or two and learn how you do everything and write it down and, you know, and da, 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 da. And they say, okay, <laughs> now <laughs> just go over there, you know? That night, of course, they're doing all these ceremonies. And I'm just like sitting there in the dark. So that's how I got there. That mm. was it. So the ethnography, of course, that you ended up writing as for your dissertation and or was the basis of, of your book, Pintaby Country, Pintaby Self, yeah. which, you know, has been a really influential text for so many anthropologists, particularly in Australia, of course. I wonder if you can reflect a little bit, Fred, on the debates that emerged following its publication. Uh, the debates that I have to answer endlessly. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I know that people who don't, uh, I'm not saying that's you, but there, there are people who love to throw it in my face. But actually, I still hold to what I have about this. I thought that they were each in their own way misguided. I thought Eric's was, I knew Eric before he went there, actually. I met him in New York. Uh, I thought Eric's was mean-spirited that you don't write a review called if all anthropologists are liars in the middle of a very political moment when anthropologists are under suspicion. So I, I didn't take him at his word. The thing about his that really clearly he had no uh, affinity for the project that I had. My project, as I understood it, 
was a study of a small-scale society, their organization in space, and also this issue about the self and the construction of a non-Western self of some way. Anna Hamilton told me to go back to my own country while I was there. We, we got, became very good friends. So he had nothing to say about any of those things. Plus, and I think fair enough in certain ways, he was very unsympathetic to the project of the attempt to understand the so-called banned society, which was my project that in that book. The project was to try to develop a model that was satisfactory to the ethnography and my experience of people. And my experience of people was one, one that had emphasized the range of individual choices and movements and so on. The other incredible flexibility of these bands. But also, they always used to say to me all the time, Jason will probably have heard this, we all know we're up and down. We're up and down. We're not living in this one little place. It's up and down, moving around. It took me a year to figure out what that meant, right? It's clear in the book, but it's like this one countryman. What did that mean, right? And what and go around. So, so he we had no interest in that. But for me, I, I was interested in understanding the possible lives that human beings could have. And I saw that as being related to the kinds of organizations that they had and what were those organizations. And that was one part of the book. And the other part of the book was uh, really historical, was an account of how these emerging outstation movements were in certain sense consistent with their own organizational forms. Why they kept breaking up into smaller groups, why they didn't want to live in a big settlement. And that was something that I wanted to explain, not as a failure, but as a constitutive principle of the politics of those societies. Because I had been in dialogue with people from the Department of Aboriginal Affairs and all of these very judgmental people. Remember, I didn't, I was not a policy person. I didn't sit down or ever intend to talk to anybody, but nonetheless, being on the ground, you're constantly talking to representatives of the government in Australia, which is very small, very intimate. And I never wanted to speak. That was the rule I learned from them. I never wanted to speak on behalf or in place of them. I refused to do that. But the book was an attempt to give an analytical background to their own claims about what they were doing. And it sort of drew on Marshall Stalin's Islands of History and the way in which culture uh, transforms itself in changing circumstances. And so that, that, you know, that was exciting to me. And I, so he, he wasn't interested in that. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, yeah, but I'm just wondering if you could reflect a little bit more on the role of the anthropologist as an intermediary in because I know you've performed yep. this role as an intermediary with between community, the communities you work with and the state, whether they're collecting institutions or whether they're other forms of government. So I was just wondering if you could reflect a little bit about your role over the years as well. I can, as, I, can as an intermediary. I can tell you, and you know, when I got there, almost the first thing I heard was black power, you know, and um, this is our own place, and you have to do what we tell you, or else you're gone, right? That was really. Uh, from the beginning, the Pintabi moved out there on their own. It was all self-determination. They just pushed themselves out and they made things happen. And they made it very clear to me that I had to live by their rules. And, and you probably, uh, I wrote an article about this, but there was a moment in which there was an exposure of some things that people in the Pintabi community had said about Papunya. That was a big blow up. And I thought, oh crap, I wonder if that was me. I'm just like, I went just, I just the blood drained from me. And I thought it's the end of me. That was it. I learned that I was never uh, to speak for them or in place of them for other things. So I mean, I think I was in the period in which 
Uh, the big the necessity of intensive consultation with the community was crucial. I've always explained it by saying that I learned to be a member of that community. I don't think I was expected to do anything different from what they did. They didn't like other people speaking on behalf of it. It wasn't their story. And so I was always afraid I'd be evicted if I didn't, you know, live by the rules. And um, I think we'd already seen, you know, I'd heard already the issues about, you know, anthropologists and talking behind our backs. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't think I knew enough to do that. What I would do is, remember, I was living out there by myself in a little 12-foot caravan with no power. I had a kerosene lamp. I would talk to white people who were working with them to help understand what people were wanting from them. That seemed to be a useful thing, especially the issue about why the bosses had to look after them, which was an endless stress. The thing is, it wasn't hard for me to understand this because of the politics from where I'd come from, right? You know, it wasn't that I was trained to be suspicious of experts because it wasn't quite at that level, but I think after the left politics of the 60s in the US and so on, civil rights movements, and the issues of self-determination and black power were intense, even in the most remote communities. Neville Perkins was out there before I was there and he told them, you know, don't trust any white people. You just learned that you had to fit into what people's expectations were. I'm just wondering, Fred, whether the intercultural frame that I'm sure you know, it certainly informs um, painting culture, the sort yeah. of follow-up tome to TV country. I, I'm just wondering whether that intercultural framework is more explicit in painting culture and whether you, whether you could reflect on how your methodology and your theoretical approach has changed between those two books. Well, that's really great. I can tell you, I thought a lot about this. I was up all night the other night. But it had to do with the Asia Society exhibition. I'd already written my first uh, essay on Pintabi art. It was called Truth Beating Pindaby Painting. And, uh, and I'd been back out there, you know, a lot in the eight, early 80s and again in 1988. But what happened, the Asia Society show, which was four years after the uh, Primitivism show at the Museum of Modern Art, the Asia Society show, there were all these reviews about that painting and really pissed me off. They were, I thought, incredibly ethnocentric. And I, I had what I think is a really common anthropological view. Oh, well, these people, they should talk to us and we'll tell them. And then the more I started to think about it and try to write, I thought, I'll do an ethnography. I'll just try to understand what's going on with this exhibition and these other kinds of things that are going on. It's right in New York. And the more I sort of worked through the material, it was really a prop and kind of empirical ethnographic project. I realized that their work was in a world out there in a bigger world. And what warrant is there to say that there's an authentic set of meetings and a non-authentic set, right? And I can tell you what the influences were on me to think that. So that was the empirical situation. I was really trying to think about how to understand what was going on anthropologically, as opposed to just being, you know, critical and showing how much smarter I was than other people. And this is a, it's, it, you know, it's right after writing culture is out. I'm kind of friendly with Clifford and Marcus. I didn't really like in some ways, but the issue really was this language would be the politics of representation. That we're living in a heterogeneous world now of migrations, diasporas, and so on. Uh, a world in which there's a flow of meaning and objects and so on. So I, I, the frame changed. And what I, I wanted to understand was what are, if you will, the politics of discourse. That was another language that was around, in which these different frames, who has the authority here? And what happens when these things get thrown out there? And that was when I decided 
well, among other things, that um, as I had a role, possibly as an anthropologist, in providing uh, some critical readings of Aboriginal work that could be flow into the mix. I realized I didn't know much about art theory, uh, and that this work was flowing into another set of discourses that had their own frameworks. In other words, it was just that that's what it was. That's the intercultural that is like, like called that essay anthropology in a world of others. I just realized that if there aren't these boundaries, which I kind of held in at bay a little bit in Pindaby country, even though they're engaging with the state, that part's very clear, but this was about these meanings. And the really critical point, I wrote this essay, at first I gave it as a paper, it was 100 pages. I think I'm a long talker. This essay was supposed to be a 40-minute talk. It was 100 pages, like halfway to a book, and tracing out these connections. And then I realized that really, if I will use this, the, the local or the Pintaby meanings of these paintings and so on were no more secure semiotically than any others. They were just what the authorities in that community insisted they were because they had the power to fix those meanings. I mean, if you really open up, and so I was teaching at this time and I was teaching, I began to teach a course that was called Symbolic Anthropology, but it was really all about this. It was all about these open-ended semiotic systems, the influence of power and institutional location on the circulation. And so it to be countries really about production and reproduction. That's right, yeah, that's the language of it. The rest is circulation. Intercultural was about circulation because it's circulation that opens up this issue that you're moving between not just cultures, but different institutions in the same society. So that, that's how it came to be. And it was really that combination of a theoretical moment and the particular situation that I found myself in. So just to clarify, Fred, for uh, the listeners, the exhibition that you referred to was an art exhibition that came to... It was Dreamings, the Art of Aboriginal Australia. Peter Sutton and Chris Anderson were the main curators of it from the South Australian Museum. It was, oh, it's a great story. Of course, it was the money for it came from Australia's trying to build its tourist. This is why I could not write about this tourist attraction for itself. They gave money to South Australian Museum to connect up with the U.S. Dreaming's the Art of Aboriginal Australia. There was, a, I forget, I think the constant general and it was probably a South Australian. And uh, Peter Sutton, who was an old friend of mine, was, I knew him from the Institute of Regional Studies. They were both working at the same time. So it came over and I kind of hung out with them. And so when I saw these reviews, I was just incensed. They were so wrong and I knew what they were right. But I, I realized this was the, I would say, the honorable ethnographic moment in which the anthropological claims of ethnocentrism, I really put in, in a bracket to see them as, not that they're wrong, I don't think they're wrong, but I think that's not what it's about. It, you know, So if you want to secure these meanings, how do you come about, what are the issues of that? So that was what it was. And I had, my daughter was born in 1989 and she got a serious genetic disorder. And that really, we had four, four months of field work just before she was born. Actually, Faye came out to work on indigenous media with me on, I had a grant, we went to Yundamu to follow up where Eric had been working on, even despite everything, uh, you know, <laughs> he does, he deserves honor, right? And then she was pregnant and she went back and I stayed. And then I went back for the show. So there was another thing too, personal circumstances really made turning to this something that I could do. I think, you know, serendipity, 
circumstances. I had to do what many women have to do. You got to work with the circumstances you find yourself in. And it was lucky for me because it was really exciting. We might change directions just a little bit now. And I want to ask each of you, perhaps starting with Jason, how you think contemporary Aboriginal communities use the ethnographic materials that uh, perhaps you've been involved in creating? And did you envisage that your work would be used in this way in the process of creating those materials? So I'll start with Jason. Yeah, just going back to what Fred said before about this sort of switch to circulation. I think this is something that's really occupied my thinking and my work for quite a long time now. You know, coming into communities in Central Australia as an ethnographer, really looking at the way that the resources that are generated through the work of anthropology and ethnography have re-entered Aboriginal communities today. Mm. And I'm sure this is happening in lots of Indigenous communities across the globe now. My particular lens has been Australia. And yeah, this idea of circulation and re-engagement with these materials now has been fascinating to watch because when anthropologists are at work in communities and my work is focused mainly on late 19th century and mid 20th century anthropological collecting and work when this work's produced you know items of what is now considerable meaning and significance for people um, begins to re-enter communities and in some ways reshape the way people see themselves And I'm sure Fred's encountered this with sort of the return of films Mm -hmm. and uh, paintings into communities too. But, you know, I've looked most closely at the return of ethnographic film and uh, sound recordings and photographs and uh, field diaries as well into communities. And yeah, these these are now considered invaluable resources uh, by people. And, you know, what I find kind of most striking about this recirculation is that the communities don't necessarily see these versions of themselves, these historical, now historical versions of themselves as authoritative. They see them as texts to be creatively and dynamically engaged with and interrogated and critiqued. And Fred, did you have a similar experience? I know more recently you've been involved with a project with Ian Dunlop and Pip Deverson in, in returning materials. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, first I just want to say that I, I was a reader of the dissertation that became ceremony then. I, I, say, I think this is not just an interest, it's a theoretically very interesting moment that's very connected to what I also was just taught about the openness of meaning. And so it's more than just the history of these communities, but it's also about the nature of human lives and dealing with histories and their materialities and the remaking of life. I think it's really much more important than people, other than the few of us who are kind of engaged in it, uh, realize and so if it's possible for people to document this and keep that story about the people making and reinventing their lives through these materials that's really crucial and there's a lot of this going on all over interestingly one of my advisors pretty Diliguna, that was her project she did the ethno history of us the three volumes under mount saint elias of the Tlingit people in this area they gave her an honor at the, you know, they don't do that very commonly for anthropologists in Native North America, for getting that their history could interact with. So I do think that, you know, that's probably been going on a little longer in the U.S. Uh, because of the place of ethno-history, especially in Canada, there are a few people who've been doing that um, work. I think that's the exciting place for anthropology now. I really do. 
it's really where critical theory belongs at the moment. For me, I stumble into everything, really. I'm, I'm not driven by, usually by a theoretical goal. It's not that I'm not, I mean, theoretical, but it's like, I can't do it unless something's happening in front of me to think with that makes me think it through. I'm not a pure uh, theorist. And so I really wanted to show these films that Ian shot in 1974. I was kind of a consultant and hung around with him. And we translated all of it. But it was on 16 millimeter. We couldn't take it back. And he never could make it into a film. Anyway, blah, blah. You know, eventually it gets transferred into video. And so we arranged to take it back. Oh, that's like 2005, 2006. And then he fell down. And broke. So they were so excited by seeing it. And then I thought, well, I've got to like come back out here and see what they want to do with this, if anything. So we got a grant. To do that, it was called Kinjibi Dialogues. I don't even know how I wrote this grant, really, but with Nick. But Nick had to be the sponsor of it. So it was just a shot in the dark, but the goal was really just, I just wanted to spend time with them and talk about these older people and see what they thought about them. And then we could all listen to these men and women speaking in the kind of speech that they used to have. And then I'll just tell you one more thing, which I, because I do think it's very important. Uh, Lisa Stepoff, who'd been my a PhD student with me and Faye uh, helped drive out there. And when we were coming back, we got a message from Sister Annie, who was the nursing sister out there. And she said, the people are loving this film. They, all they can talk about is how healthy everybody looks. And so uh, we thought, you know, wow, there's, that's where the historical thing is, you know. And I uh, went back out the next year. It was uh, the dedication of the new studio at Kintor. And I, I drove up to the um, Bowser, get petrol, and this white woman comes out to the Kintor, and she says, oh, Fred Myers, you know, how are you? It was nice to see I said, like, I'm, who are you? I know my memory's not good, but I don't, <laughs> I don't know you. And she said, oh, I see you in the film every day, four hours a day, because people are being and having dialysis, and they're watching this footage all the time that's kind of that did it that was why that kind of pushed the whole thing so that's what i mean so that you know that became the basis for that it was a pleasure principle really so the, i guess the other area where you've worked at returning materials or consulting with people about returned materials has been painting i'm thinking specifically about paintings that might have been well they kind of shift in their meaning from being sort of considered open public artworks and then they shift into sort of restricted cultural space where people within these communities will say no the iconography in these paintings deems yeah. them to be restricted can you talk just a little bit about how the difficulties yeah. and the challenges of working through those issues with communities well the challenge is really distance for consultation. I, and I think it's a problem for any museum or any exhibition of any sort is that museums have limited money usually for their shows and therefore they tend to short circuit their consultations. You would be very aware of this. Um, this has certainly been an issue with Native Americans in museums and you know they just want, how can I fax it to them? Who can I send it to? Who can give me permission? Who can sign off? The opposite of what you've been doing. I mean, this sort of sustained engagement, which is what people had wanted. So when the NMAI National Museum of the American Indian opened themselves. Jolene Ricard and Paul Katz, Chad Smith spent extended periods of time consulting with communities. In any case, what happened with the paintings is when I was there in uh, 1973, they stored the paintings in my caravan and they painted where women and children couldn't see them because the designs they said were not appropriate. People asked them 
is it okay then to send these out? He said, oh yeah, it doesn't matter because our women and kids won't see them and other people won't know what they are. So this has changed for reasons that Jason has already just mentioned, the internet and communication technology so that they're this stuff is coming back, they're aware of it. I mean, they were always looking at, even when I was first there, they knew that what was in Mrs. Whatever Her Name's shop, the Aranda Art Bookstore, they had all of those really inappropriate things to show, but people would just look at them and kind of, you know. So it's been very fractious about what can be shown and what can't be shown. A lot of people feel like the time is over, it shouldn't be done. But there's still a lot of room for recriminations to happen in communities for things that they, for people to make trouble if things are shown that they feel are not that. So we did that, we did a consultation for Magnet. Dick Kimber and I did an initial consultation for Magnet for the um, Children of Show. And then Luke, bless him, did a really intensive consultation with people to get their permission and I can tell you that some of the things that people say now are okay, I don't think they would have said before. Mm-hmm. And some of the things that people now say, oh, we can't show that, I know were not a problem before. There's, it's, but it, it is what it is. Well, I guess this, is a, this will be a constant challenge for museums and collecting institutions and you know, yeah. negotiating constantly and continually with the source communities about what these objects mean to them. Can I add one more thing? Because I don't think it's ultimately solvable in any pure way. Every exhibition is, as is true for every ritual, an opportunity for an explosion, right? If it's all about the politics of representation and the politics of showing, it's always possible that there's not agreement or that somebody will take the opportunity to insist that the other people are wrong. And so there, you know, the idea that there's some absolute authority in an indigenous community who can give you permission is probably usually mistaken. And I think we're often protected from that because we're outside of those communities to some extent. But I think that's kind of the interesting, it's interesting, but it's a challenge. That's a good point. I mean, Jason, do you see in this kind of political landscape where exhibitions or or objects that are put on display and the, the kinds of consultation that happens around decision making in terms of the development of exhibitions, do you see that there's a role for anthropologists as intermediaries? I mean, particularly given the, the kind of broader landscape that we might think about, which is, you know, calls to decolonise these kinds of institutions. Yeah, well, it's a a critical area for those engaged in museum anthropology in particular to now engage with. This idea, which is now prevalent, of decolonising the collecting institutions around us, whether that's actually possible or not when, you know, these institutions reside within a settler colonial state, say in Australia or the United States or Canada, is another question. But if there's, is there a role for anthropologists? I think that's a, a really interesting question. And I can only really reflect on my own role and similar to Fred's, I guess, as a kind of a, someone who is there to not, certainly not work on behalf of community or speak for a source community, but to do some of that scholarly work around working through collections, um, doing archival research, but also re-engaging with those communities today and, and discussing that issue of circulation and recirculation of objects of cultural significance and exploring those issues with people. I think there's certainly a role for anthropologists in, in that kind of work. 
And this could be actually be part of a decolonising process. Anthropologists could work to help raise the um, profile and the power base of Indigenous communities to gain access to and control over collections, which are fundamentally entangled already, as they are, and intercultural objects in many ways. A lot of these collections are already intercultural objects and produced sometimes alongside anthropologists. So I guess we're, we're sort of, we're part of that process. Yeah, I think entanglement is, a, you know, it's Nick Thomas's term, but I think it's really quite appropriate. I don't think decolonization can disentangle because there are a lot of dimensions of the histories of these objects which are not singular and their forms of knowledge. I think, you know, what I think anthropologists can do in that context is to provide what they know and the kind of information and that they can dig up about the historical circumstances that maybe there are or aren't indigenous scholars to do. And that's a lot. But I would add one other thing, which is I think indigenous curators are also in a difficult spot, especially in Australia, in a place that's relatively egalitarian in which people's identities are linked to particular mobs and so on. They can't speak. They also are themselves exposed to many of the same questions authority that the rest of us have. The difference is they usually know it. And a lot of anthropologists, because they've been shielded from the blowback, do not. And it is very stressful. It's very demanding on people uh, to do this. And sometimes anthropologists can help by, you know, some of the go-between work on that and so on. But I, I, I think exploring what the entanglements are is important because there's just a lot to these histories that people may not want to know right now, but they should still be preserved. I think that even if Indigenous communities want to have their objects be what they are to them. There's still a history of the engagements that may have some value that shouldn't be just washed off. And um, that may not be important or relevant to them, but I think it may be at some point. I think there's, a, there's another kind of entanglement at work here, the entanglement between anthropology and Indigenous studies, sort of at the disciplinary yes. and scholarly level. So how well do you think anthropology has melded with Indigenous studies? And maybe you could reflect on the way you see things playing out in the US as compared to Australia and how those two disciplines yes, well, interact. Mostly Indigenous studies, I would say, is really driven by a political form of knowledge production that is to delineate the histories of oppression and domination and to find the space, the political theory through which they might engages. I would say, you know, the book that's Beth Povinelli's uh, kind of recognition, very, you know, uh, popular in, in that framework, because it makes a particular kind of argument. They don't want to hear, you know, something I might say, well, look, you know, that's fine, but the state's not singular, right? There are many opportunities for activists. We know that that's what artists do. There are many other institutions in which dominated people gain access and, and, and sort of, but Maybe, maybe the project, maybe not. So there's a negotiation that has to take place because they're not, they're not coming from the same issues. And I, and and also, as you will obviously know, reading old anthropological texts is an embarrassment if you have indigenous people in your group. It's just uh, horrifying, you know, to hear. Even though we might pass over some of these words and realize they were of the time, it's their families mm. you know, who are being described as the savages or whatever. 
I guess, and, Fred, um, I guess this is another yeah. another role for the anthropologist in this kind yeah. of process is to act as the translator, to translate anthropological work to people today and, and sort of almost be kind of embarrassed by <laughs> some of the, the framing. I think it's on us to figure out what's in that that's useful for people now. I, I can't justify or reframe it. It's just racist uh, that there are still useful things in there. I think it's possible if you have good faith with people. But, you know, when we created an Indigenous Studies minor here, I knew we're not going to house it in the anthropology department. They don't want to walk in here, right? That just has to be somewhere else. They'd rather be in the history department or in ethnic studies. And we have to, you have to respect that. I don't think anthropologists are the personally, I don't think we're the principal oppressors in that sense. I think it looks as if our works are, but we are not the people who created settler colonialism. We're hardly even the handmaidens of it, but nonetheless, we are the recorders of some of these things. And so, so what are your thoughts think, on, sorry, what are your thoughts on the renaming of Crowbar Hall? Well, I think you have to respect the feelings of people who are, you know, native Americans from that area. And, you know, I'd say, I think he did a lot more than they are aware of. He did some bad things. I don't think he was a collector of skeletons. I don't think actually, I'm not sure that the Ishii thing is so simple, but nevertheless, um, he didn't stop it. Not that he could have, but I think changing the name is a recognition of um, something that is a harm to people who shouldn't have to feel that to learn some, they have to be submitted to that. I think it's, I guess, you know, small sacrifice, small change to acknowledge uh, the conditions under which people work. I, he doesn't need to be honored. He had a, he had a good life. He published 800 articles. Some of them are very valuable and books. You know, I mean, I think that his career can be reconsidered, maybe not by those people, but I think, you know, and a lot of the, even a lot of the people who were involved in that said, you know, yeah, maybe he did do a lot of good things, but he did this and we can't go in there. We just don't feel we can go in there. And it's, it's hard to listen because I actually think he rescued all these languages, right? It's not a small thing, right? But we are what we are. And if that's the way we have to bear for having made a positive contribution to history, you have to feel that your contribution is worth it. And if people don't honor you for it, it is what it is, you know? And um, it's not the worst thing in the world to have your name removed from the hall. Um, and in the hope that in some later time when things aren't so unequal and so difficult that the material that he produced, which has a value in the history of many communities there, will be valued for what it is, not for him, but for it. And I, you know, I think you just have to get your head around that and live with it. it we're not heroes, we can't be heroes. I wonder, Fred, like given this kind of the reflection on the, the political landscape and how much it's changed or maybe hasn't in some ways, you know, and we know that you've been a kind of prolific supervisor of many, um, many anthropology students who've themselves kind of gone on to have careers in academia. I wonder how much the landscape has changed, do you think, in terms of, of, of conducting anthropological research for I guess I'm thinking here for doctoral students and, and in, in terms of developing relationships um, with contemporary communities? Well, that's a really good question. You know, that's the big challenge. I think that um, 
we're not doing usually community studies anymore. So uh, in a way, people are picking their topics for other reasons. Sometimes they are community studies. Sometimes people are studying their own. There are, there are questions. A lot more of the questions in anthropology are not based in a community, but based in a problem or something else. I mean, Jason would know, I have a student, Anna Weinick, she is interested in this repatriation project from the Humboldt Forum and the Berlin Museum and so on. She's been working on, you have not met her? Anna Weinrich. Yeah, so she's an example of a student who, she's very gifted. Um, she's a German speaker. She's very interested in museums and collections. and. She has a chance to sort of be involved in the, if you will, transactions between the Berlin Ethnological Museum, which is reforming itself and trying to, I wouldn't say decolonize, maybe decolonize, and establish relationships with the communities in the Southeast, which are the source communities. She's in the middle of facilitating it, translating it, talking to people. And well, she has to figure out how to, how that's a dissertation, you know? What is it? So I think it's very challenging for people you know, sometimes people are studying people in marginalized communities, and that's the negotiation that um, is very um, more problematic. I think commonly people are probably more commonly than in the past uh, interested in studying their own communities. They don't see why anybody else should be doing that or competing with them. I do think there are a lot of issues that anthropologists can be interested in that are not reducible to the knowledge that a community has. I would just put it in another way. So one of the complaints that comes, I think from indigenous studies and from a lot of native scholars is we already know this knowledge and you're just stealing it. And while that might have been a true characterization of an older ethnography, I don't think that a lot of what anthropologists are doing out is that. That is to say, we're not gathering traditional knowledge we're looking at other kinds of transactions and socialities and so on. I mean, that's what I'm interested in, for example. I mean, I have a history of other things and I'm still very interested in the, in those histories. But I think that, you know, Tim Ingold said this, which is that, you know, anthropology is not ethnography, right? And so there are many kinds of knowledge out there in the world that we're interested in. It's not exclusively those. And I think we have a, the methods of anthropology are very good for that. And I think the intercultural, the if you will, interinstitutional circulation is a framework of that, which in which you're not necessarily, you know, just siphoning off the knowledge of um, some communities. Sure, there is very important ethnobotanical work and all kinds of things that communities might want to have recorded and ways in which that can take place. That's one kind of thing that people can do, and that would take place if they had the um, control over the knowledge and, you know, intellectual property law, language and so on. Those all have to be worked out. I think that's the, the, the space of that is very different. But a lot of what we do isn't that anymore, I think. It's difficult for people to recognize it. And I think we're often criticized as if we were doing no more than that. And I don't think we are. And I actually often think often in the past, we weren't. But we are dependent on a collaboration with human subjects and finding some way to act ethically in relationship to that. But I don't think it's just a matter of just, you know, bombing on people's knowledge. I, I myself, I, I tell students, so I, we don't study culture. We study people doing things. 
that's what we study. And I think that is a way to explain this. It doesn't make us seem like we're just parasites on other people's knowledge. The way you describe it, though, it sounds as though anthropology still has this image of itself that it needs to um, work through in the wider public, at least. I think it's true. I don't know who's going to write this. It's, you know, they keep writing the same old stupid textbooks, right? You know, that are like as if nothing changed. You know, and then, yeah, I, you know, we're kind of a, I would say, a kind of hipper associate. We have a lot in common with science studies in that way, science and technology studies. I mean, I think the way in which people work around that is is something like that um and i don't know how we can sustain that identity or be recognized as doing that but a lot of people are working in that genre now i would say what you're doing you know with uh you know with that work on materiality and material culture studies has been a way of breaking out of the uh, kind of boundaries and a sort of celebration of uh, specific knowledges in relationship to, you know, the transactions that things are involved in. I would hope that people would value that. Maybe they think it's trivial. I don't. That might be a good point to end yeah. things on. That the people might think it's trivial, but I don't. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, you've always got to end it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I want to end it. I want to say I do think that that uh, Ceremony Men is really a, a book of the future. It is a book that really uh, animated uh, a real change in how we go about looking at these materials. That I thought that people weren't doing it. It's about how to make it knowable by people how to like it make it felt and to see what the possibilities are and i think you did such a great job for that thank you so much friend that means a lot to me to hear that from you so um, of course this is reference to jason gibson's 2020 book yeah. ceremony men making ethnography and the return yeah. of the strello collection good place to end lovely <laughs> thank you, thank so, you much. so much Thanks for listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology. In this episode, our guests were Fred Myers and Jason Gibson. This episode was produced by Cameo Daly on the lands of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation and edited by David Border-Giles and Matt Barlow with support from Maithili Maher, Timothy Neal and the Australian Anthropological Society. If you enjoyed the show, please feel free to give us a rating or review on your chosen podcasting platform also, very exciting news. We have a new website where you can find notes on this and other episodes, transcripts, information about the podcast team, and much, much more. Just go to anthroconvo.com. That's anthroconvo.com. Be well, stay safe, and tune in again soon for more conversations about life, the universe, and anthropology. Anthropology.